When I give the word, release the beasts. But sir, haven't the fighters been through enough? They've been fighting non-stop for the whole event. How is it fair to release the beast now into the fray? Fair? There is no fair here. This is where civilization has come to die. Now do it before the emperor notices. Release the beast. They are down. Men, lions, and blood is everywhere, sir. Why does everyone continue to cheer? Well, soldier, welcome to the arena of death. You are listening to the final episode in our Roman series, The Story of the Colosseum. You are listening to Is History Watching the Podcast? History for everyone, but our point of view. Where does the story of the Colosseum begin? How about with the origin story of the man who commissioned it to be built? Emperor Vespian. Let's take a walk back into history to the ascension or origin story of how Emperor Vespian came to power. The story begins in AD 68. The royal treasury is empty. The building of the Golden Palace was the final straw for the Roman Senate. They took action to oust then-Emperor Nero and declared him an enemy of the public. A man named Severius Galba, governor of Spain, was named emperor. Nero knew his time was up, opting for suicide. Failing in the attempt, he had to have one of his servants help. Upon thrusting a knife into his neck, he was said to utter the words as he lay dying. To the man who was trying to stop the bleeding, it's too late. This is loyalty. Emperor Galba was an elderly man, and in the confusion of death and ascension, he failed to name his fellow governor, Marcus Otho, as his rightful heir, ushering the Roman world into the year of four emperors. So what started the year of the four emperors? Murder, of course. It is Rome, after all. After being passed over as the rightful heir from the current emperor, Galba, Marcus Otho bribed the Praetorian Guard to murder the emperor, and was declared emperor himself in the year 69 CE. So it's 69 CE. You're sitting in the Roman Forum, awestruck at what has been happening. You talk to a friend standing next to you. So have you heard? Galba is dead, killed by his own guard. Well, who will take his place? That is simple. The man who had him murdered, of course, Governor Otho. The question is, how long will this man reign? According to historical records, the reign of Otho, like Galba and Nero before him, would end, end in defeat and suicide. It follows his defeat at the First Battle of Betcrium, which sparked a bitter civil war. This would not be the first or the last occurrence for the state of Rome. Provinces in Rome refused to take the oath of support when Gotho ascended to the throne. The Germanic-based legions instead threw their support behind the governor of Germania Inferior, a man called Vitellus, while the legions of Asia Minor in the Balkans preferred the governor of Syria, a man named Titus Flavius Vespanius, or Vespian. I bet you cannot guess what followed. If you said more war, you are correct. 
Even before the year ended, another Battle of Bedcrium occurred, resulting in Vitellus's defeat, giving Vespian a clear path to becoming the undisputed emperor of all of Rome. During this time, an emperor of Vitellus, a Batvian leader named Civilis, who was originally a Roman auxiliary officer, threw his army and support behind Vespian, at least in theory. He waged his private war against Rome, and the result of all the fighting were the loss of four entire legions and Vespian becoming the sole ruler of the Roman world. This is where the story of the Colosseum starts to take shape. Following Vitellus's torture and murder at the hands of the West victorious armies, the city of Rome was burned and pillaged. On his way to Rome, Vespian was finally enthroned on 1226-69 CE, after a year of uncertainty and death. So what came out of his reign? He proved to be an effective emperor and leader. His reign was considered a time of peace and calm in the empire. Some of his most notable acts included restoring the morale of the Roman army. He discharged some and punished others for what he termed as indulging in excesses. He also rebuilt many of the homes and temples that were burned and pillaged during Vitellus' last days and started construction of the massive Flavian amphitheater. Unlike past emperors, death did not follow his ascension to power. He held no grudges against those who had opposed him and executed none of his enemies. His one failing, according to Roman historians, was his greed for wealth and material gain. But some could argue that was to the benefit of Rome itself. He repaired the shattered finances of the empire by doubling the tributes from the provinces, charging fees for candidates for public office, and he even sold pardons. But the flip side of his greed was paying salaries to those who taught Latin and Greek, and even giving prizes to poets and artists. Upon contracting a sickness called undulant fever, he refused proper care and escaped to his summer home in Uriati. After a swim, he caught a chill and died on 623-79 CE, after ruling for only 10 years. During his reign, he brought prestige back to the Roman world and started the construction of one of the true wonders of the world, the Colosseum. We have spent the last two episodes discussing the tasks and challenges of opening a small business. But what happens when the business is open and operating? What specific challenges do you as the small business owners face? Some key factors come to mind. The first and foremost is cash flow. The capital needed to run the day-to-day -day operations of the business. Capital needed to pay things such as taxes, utilities, vendor bills, employee payroll, and even your own salary. There are plenty of stories out there of small business owners forgoing their own salary to pay employees or even vendor bills that are due. While it is of the utmost importance to pay vendors and employees, you are starting the business to make money for yourself. So what can be done to alleviate the stress of cash flow? Start with determining your break-even point, the point at which you start to make a profit. This can help to set a financial benchmark and allow you to project your cash flow needs into the future. Second, put cash flow management ahead of profit. This entails mostly staying organized and ensuring proper tools are in place to help you manage your cash flow. Utilizing the proper financial software for your business can be of great importance. Find the one that fits your accounts payable, accounts receivable, and inventory needs, which you understand and can easily access. Use it to help maintain a positive financial situation within your company. 
Another, secure credit before it is desperately needed to help finance the company. This comes in the form of company credit cards, small business loans, inventory finance companies, or even business lines of credit. Schedule your payments according to their due dates. Paying off a bill a week early is great, and in some instances can result in savings on the overall amount due. But the problem lies in depleting your cash flow too much for the small amount of savings you get. Consider this. What if a major issue arises, like a truck breaking down and needing a major repair, and you don't have the capital to pay the bill? You have to rely on credit. With credit comes interest possibly costing you more than you saved paying that vendor bill a week early. So using a responsible schedule to send your payments translates into more cash flow, staying in the business's account. Here's the last key tip. Keep money coming in. So what do I mean? Make sure your one main goal is securing clients' payments immediately upon completion of the business transaction. I once heard a story of a small business owner who would complete jobs and then not invoice a customer for months at a time. The ending result was lost jobs that were never paid, continual strains on cash flow, and added stress to an already stressful environment. So the big takeaway from that quick story is to always remain vigilant in securing payments on revenue-generating activities. Remember, the vendors, government, and employees ultimately don't care if you're slow in collecting payments. They also need their cash flow to run operations. Next episode, we will discuss the idea of time management in a small business and when to hire. This episode's small business break was once again brought to you by Freetaber Sales and Service in Oil City, PA, offering professional factory-trained sales and service to the greater Tri-County area for over 53 years. Check them out online at freetaber.com. Now, back to the story. It's a wonder. It's truly magnificent. It's a splendor of architecture and engineering. When the emperor broke ground eight years ago, I did not think it could be done. Now look at it. Emperor Titus is launching the first ever games and combat shows. And get this, they are free. And you can eat for free. I even heard a rumor it's going to be filled with water. And he's going to put boats in there for a grand show. Huh, I don't think it can be done. The original construction of the Flavian Amphitheater took from 72 AD to 80 AD and span the reign of three emperors, Vespian, Titus, and Domitian. It is around 1,937 years old, and is one of the seven wonders of the world. So how was it financed? After the victory of the first Jewish revolt, the Temple of Jerusalem and its surrounding provinces were sacked. The riches were sent back to Rome, along with 60 to 100,000 slaves, who then became the slave laborers who built the Flavian Amphitheater. It was built on the site of Nero's Golden Palace, over one of the man-made lakes that has been filled in. The original name came from the dynasty of emperors who originally built and added to the complex. So where did the name Colosseum come from? The name Colosseum is thought to have come from the colossal bronze statue of Emperor Nero that stood on the property and was said to be modeled after the Colossus of Rhodes, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So what did it look like when it opened? Sporting an oval shape, it was 620 feet long, 512 feet wide, and 159 feet tall. The surface area encompassed over six acres of land. It was built with 100,000 cubic meters of travertine stone, quarried from a mine over 20 miles away. The stones were held together by thousands of iron clamps. 
It also contained the famous Roman arch, which can also be seen in aqueducts all over the empire. The Colosseum had three levels. They contained columns called the Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian. Each level had a total of 80 of the arches, totaling 240. 76 of the arches contained Roman numerals above them, which served as a guide to help citizens find their seats. It was said to hold between 50 and 80,000 spectators of varying classes of Roman citizens. The basement, built during Dominion's reign, was called the Hypogym, was a serious engineering feat in itself. This became the staging area for the shows and the games. It deployed through 80 vertical shafts, the animals, the scenery, the slaves, the prisoners, and the gladiators. The Hypogym also held all those things. It was recorded that over 400,000 people and millions of animals died in the Colosseum during its lifetime. An interesting side note, this was not the first amphitheater in the empire. The earliest was found in the city of Pompeii, from our very first episode, and was dated to around 70 BCE. What a small Roman world it was. The term gladiator, and no, not the Russell Crowe movie, was a term used to describe the men and women who fought sometimes to the death for fame and fortune. The name was derived from the principal weapon of Rome, the gladius, or short sword. So why don't we deviate from the main story for just a bit and talk about the Roman short sword. The famous, or maybe infamous, gladius existed in Rome in three versions. The longest was the Republican gladius, next came the Marnes gladius, and the shortest was the Pompeian gladius. The design remained the same, a double-edged tapered blade with a point made of heavy steel or iron ore. It had a wrapped handle with a large pommel on the end, which made it very well balanced. It was a perfect weapon for both thrusting and slashing, and was perfect for close-quarter ancient combat. Legionnaires would thrust at the enemy from behind a shield, which limited the exposure of their bodies to enemy soldiers. It was used to great effect in conquering Gaul. When the social tribes were deployed with longer swords that were hard to swing in close-quarter combat, limiting their effectiveness. Soldiers would carry them in leather or sheet metal scabbards with four hoops, on the right side for legionnaires, on the left side for centurions and officers. You might think, Romans in their engineering might would be the ones that invented the sword that conquered the ancient world. You would be wrong. Originally called the Gladius Hispanius, a.k.a. the Hispanicus, or Spanish short sword, it was used by the Iberian tribes fighting as mercenaries and allies of the Carthaginians during the first and second, Romans saw the sword in use and began to adopt it for military use. So you may ask, what did the Romans use during the war? Romans were originally armed with a longer blade called a spatha, which came in around 27.5 inches long, whereas the gladius original design was 25 inches long. The carnage inflicted by the sword can be summed up in a quote by the writer Livy, written on account of Macedonian soldiers from the year 200 BCE. It was quoted, they said, They saw bodies mutilated by a Spanish sword, arms lopped off at the shoulders, or heads separated from bodies with the neck cut right through, or entrails laying open, and other repulsive wounds. And there was a general panic as they began to see what type of weapon and men they had to fight. So where did the idea for gladiatorial combat originate? Romans were influenced by the Etruscans in the early days of the Republic. Etruscans used the games in association with rites of death and during the funerals of most likely 
important people or leaders in their society. It gave for the Romans a religious significance to the contests. The earliest contest was recorded to occur in 264 BCE and was to commemorate the death of a father. Later, the games were used by emperors and rich aristocrats to display wealth and gain favor of the mass population of Rome and its territories. Some of the major reasons including military victories, celebrating birthdays, and even used to distract the populace from political and economic turmoil. You may imagine fully armored men, legionnaire lookalikes, slugging it out to the death on the floor of the Colosseum. It can be more closely seen as an ancient boxing match. Fights were divided by classes, according to size, weight, and fighting skills. Matchups were based on experience, records, and styles of fighting. Would you believe they even had doctors and referees monitor the matches? Most of the matches didn't even end in death of the fighters. They were bloody spectacles, just not often chaotic killing sprees like those depicted in current modern movies. Although that is to say a large number did die in the arena. Some gladiators went on to have long careers and even became celebrities of their day. Some even kept their prize money and gifts and retired after winning their freedom. Gladiators were not slaves. They were labeled as part of the infam class. They became fighters by choice, or as a punishment for a crime, they would forfeit their rights and lives and become property of their owners. They could, however, win back their freedom with an impressive fighting record, and they would receive a wooden sword from the emperor, granting their freedom. It's hot. They keep pushing us. I'm going to pass out from all the training. I know, but we have no choice. We belong to our master now. What do you mean? We volunteered for this. They cannot make us train nonstop all day. And yesterday I was given a curved sword. What does this even mean? Like our fictional characters above, gladiators were trained at schools all over the empire. The Ludus Magnus was the largest and most famous. Built by Emperor Domitian, gladiators came from all over the empire to be trained and housed within its walls. The entrance was called the Via Labonica. It was located below the street level and was accessible by steps. The entire facility was 206 feet long, and it even contained a spectator section called the Cavia. There were even tunnels dug underneath the training ground to act as storage and give a direct access route to the Colosseum. The training was rigorous, and even the volunteers were chained to their cells, only allowed free to eat and practice. Five type of fighters came out of the schools. The first, the Samantite. They were modeled after the Samantite warriors, the early republic, using a lance and protecting themselves with a large square shield. The Thracian fighters used a curved short sword called the Sicca and a small round or square shield to deflect blows. The Mymillo, or the Mirimillo, the fisherman. He had a fist-shaped crest on his helmet, carrying a short sword called a suctum, and padded armor on his arms and legs. The Ritarius, possessing no helmet or armor, just had a padded shoulder piece. They carried a net to entangle their opponents and then stab them with a trident. And lastly, the Bastari. They fought wild animals and beasts. Female gladiators did exist within the empire, 
scholars have had a hard time accepting the reality of female gladiators. But evidence has been found. Female gladiators were often referred to in ancient texts called ludia. When they were talking about a festival or entertainment, they were called mulieris, meaning women. Never in the ancient texts do you see a woman called a gladiatrix. This is a modern name, first applied to female gladiators in the 1800s CE. Even Romans of the time had trouble accepting women in the arena. Roman society dictated women as second class to men in the male-dominated society. They were seen as property of their fathers and then husbands, and lacked independence in their everyday lives. This is thought to be the appeal of a life in a sport so fraught with mayhem and death. It gave them independence to succeed, and even earn an income on their own. So where does the evidence exist? First, in 11 CE, a law was passed through the Roman Senate banning women under 20 years of age com from competing in gladiatorial games. By the year 2000 CE, Emperor Severus banned women completely from competing. He claimed women competing created a lack of respect by men. Physical evidence has also been discovered proving their existence. Found in 1996 and then announced in 2000, the remains of the great Dover Street woman were a set of remains consisting of a cremated skeleton and the pelvis bone of a female. Surrounding physical evidence shows proof of a feast and signs of purification of an arena after gladiatorial combat had taken place. This comes in the form of oil lamps and burned pine cones. This lends credence to the fact that the evidence and remains found were from a respected female gladiator. A relief was also found in, in the Turkish city of Bodrum. It depicts two female gladiators. They were given the names Amazon and Achilla. Still circumspect, literary evidence has also been found from Roman writers, including Juvenile and Tacitus. Tacitus, in his work titled The Annals, Volume 32, was quoted saying, Many ladies of distinction, however, and senators, disgraced themselves by appearing in the amphitheater. Juvenile, in his satires during the 1st and 2nd century CE, wrote, What sense of shame can be found in a woman wearing a helmet? Who shuns femininity and loves brute force? If an auction is held of your wife's effects, how proud will you be of her belt and arm pads and plumes and her half-length left shin guard? Or if instead she prefers, prefers a different form of combat, how pleased will you be when your the girl of your heart sells off her greaves? Hear her grunt while she practices thrusts as shown by the trainer, wilting under the weight of the helmet. This was in volume 252. This depicts the embarrassment and shame a husband could have felt from his wife competing in the games. The connotation associated with the quote has to be looked at through the lens of history and not adapted to today. But it gives literary proof of the existence of females competing in games. Add that to the physical evidence, and I think it's an open and shut case. Archaeological evidence of Rome has fascinated and wowed us all. But how about the Colosseum being flooded? As mentioned earlier, one of the uses of games was to celebrate military victories. This also applied to famous sea battles. Mock sea battles were known throughout the empire and did not just exist in the Colosseum. In the year 46 BC, 
a battle took place in a basin dug near the River Tiber. There were over 4,000 oarsmen and 2,000 fighting men, with captured Tyrian and Egyptian fleets set afloat, all to honor the victories of the famed General Julius Caesar. Although no physical evidence exists, it has been read that even Emperor Nero dove into the mock sea battles. His was recorded to have been in 57 AD and in a wooden amphitheater, and even consisted of sea creatures like seals. Emperor Titus was the first to utilize the Colosseum. There's written proof from Cassius Dio and Centonius, said that the arena could be filled and drained quickly. The first sea battle occurred in 80 AD during its opening. The arena was ordered flooded, and he had special flat-bottom boats made that were smaller replicas of Roman Navy ships. It consisted of 3,000 combatants, and even had a fake island in the center where the sailors would disembark and fight it out on land. The mock battle was a reenactment of the real battle between Athens and Syracuse. The final sea battle took place in 89 AD during Emperor Domitian's reign. Their popularity had decreased, although, in favor of the more popular combat sports. Many other games also took place, from chariot races to wild animal hunts, and to the execution of criminals. Even triumphs in military parades graced the floors inside and outside the arena. But we cannot fail to mention the other great arena in Rome, the Circus Maximus. It held over 250,000 spectators and housed the largest chariot races of the time. Emperor Nero was even reported to have raced a 10-horse chariot team during his reign. So what can we say is the legacy of the Roman Colosseum? It attests to the grandeur and greatness of Roman architecture and engineering standing as one of the most intact structures from the Roman times. It is continually modeled after in the designs of modern sports stadiums and its idea of entertainment for the masses. It provided a needed respite from political, social, economic, military, and general famine for the lives of everyday Roman citizens. But in 404 AD, Honorius finally banned the act of gladiatorial games, leaving the Colosseum to stand unused for its original design. The last known use of the structure was in the 6th century, with the last recorded games. After a series of earthquakes damaged the structure, it was left in disarray, even becoming a source of building material in the later centuries. It now stands as a triumph to Rome, and a source of income to the country of Italy, from the millions of travelers who come to walk in the footsteps of gladiators. Thank you for listening to our story of the Roman Colosseum. Our next series will talk about little-known history. Stories that are not part of the historical mainstream or historical narrative. Remember, history comes alive with those who embrace, study, and interpret the past.